0: The following audio is from the Springs Church. More information about the Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to you all in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. If you are a visitor, I want to especially extend a special welcome to you and uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, We have visitor cards in the lobby if you'd like to fill one of those out for us to be able to stay in touch with you. Um, We also have a digital visitors card that you can access uh, via the link in your Sunday sheet or there's a QR code if that's your thing. And so we'd love for you to fill that out so we can get to know you and stay in touch with you a little bit better. Uh, We also have a couple things down on our tables, around our communion tables in the auditorium uh, for you to grab on your way out this morning. It's the first Sunday of Lent, and we've got a wonderful little Lent bookmark here with the Lent Scripture readings for every Sunday of Lent. So you can grab one of those if you'd like to stay up on the Scriptures as we observe this season. And secondly, missions pledge cards. We've still got those down at the tables this morning. Uh, If you were here a couple weeks ago, because we were iced out last Sunday, of course, uh, we had a great mission Sunday capping off four weeks of missions month. And I'm happy to tell you that we are well on our way to our goal of our missions budget, which is $115,000 this year. And counting up all the checks and the cash and taking into account the pledges, We're right around $82,000 so far. So give it up. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your generosity and for making that possible. And if you're still praying or considering about giving or you want to pledge, then uh, please feel free to do so. Come grab one of these cards. We really want to make up that last $33,000 to support uh, not just our short-term mission trips, But the salaries of our missionaries are excellent missionaries, and especially uh, we're excited about Mitt and Maya in Singapore now, supporting them. So thank you so much for making it an excellent missions month here at the Springs. We're in Acts 14 this morning, verses 8 through 20. In our series, Acts the Spirit-Powered Church. Luke writes, In Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking and Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting friends why are you doing this we are mortals just like you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them In past generations he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came there from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowds. Then they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead but when the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the city. The next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derb. Let's pray. Lord God, we give thanks this morning for your gracious presence, for your Holy Spirit. We give thanks for the story of the Gospel, a story that you have enfolded us into. God, I give thanks for each and every person in here. I give thanks that they have come this morning to worship you. To come as they are, but not to stay as they are. To be changed by your powerful love. God, I ask for the gift of preaching this morning, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would open up our eyes and ears and our hearts to the message of your gospel. In the name of Jesus we pray. churches of Christ don't see a lot of miracles Uh, if you've grown up in the restoration movement as this church has and many of us have then it's probably not quite as central to your religious experience as some other denominations now there are exceptions um, I know some of you, including Lara, have been party to and witnessed some incredible, miraculous things, even miraculous healings. Um, in fact, there was an exception to this rule that happened at the Columbia Church of Christ in Maryland in the spring of 2000. It was at this church that there was a mild-mannered, soft-spoken psychiatrist named Michael who would often lead worship. And Michael's father had just passed away recently, and they had had a tumultuous relationship. He was a severe and hard man, and so Michael, understandably, had some mixed emotions at this point. And so he shows up to church that Sunday morning, and he's supposed to lead singing, but his arm is in a sling. And he has pinched a nerve in his neck so terribly that he's actually had to cancel some of his psychiatric patients on that Friday. And so the preacher, a guy named John, he, he finds somebody else, he scrambles, he gets a replacement from Michael who's not going to be able to lead singing. And they start the service and he leads the first song and that's at the point where John usually gets up and he starts a welcome and they go from there. But he sees out of the corner of his eye, Michael, just kind of sitting there wincing in pain and terribly uncomfortable. And he thinks, all right, all right I got to stop this for a second. And it's a church of Christ, remember? You don't deviate at a church of Christ, right? You stay on task. You follow the outlined order. But he stops and he's like, look, you guys know what's been going on in Michael's life. And he's having a rough time. Also, you should know that he's pinched a nerve in his neck so badly that he's like losing clients over it. So I'm going to call him up here and I'm going to pray for healing for him. And so he calls him up, and he places his hand on Michael's good shoulder, and he begins to pray, and he prays for healing for the pinched nerve, he prays for long-term healing for his grief, and Michael goes back and sits down, and they keep going with the service. Well, it's a couple songs in that suddenly, mild-mannered, soft-spoken Michael begins jumping up and down wildly. And he begins shouting, he begins saying, he did it, he did it, John. And he runs down to the front of the auditorium and he grabs one of the microphones from the singers. And he says, I, I can't explain it, but my, my arm, it's healed. Like there was this warm sensation and then it was like my arm just breathed this sigh of relief. He did it, John. And, and the congregation just begins this spontaneous clapping and shouting and praising. If you'd have walked in, you would have thought it was Pentecostal, not a church of Christ. And to this day, if Michael and John ever see each other run into one another, Michael will say, look, that's the guy who prayed and healed my arm. To which John will correct him and say, No, I just happened to be standing there when God healed your arm. There's a miraculous healing in our text this morning. Acts 14. Paul speaks healing into these legs of this lame man. And like Michael misattributing the miraculous to John, his preacher, The people in our text also struggle to see where this miracle is coming from. They struggle to see that this sign of a miracle is pointing towards the living God. And so Luke begins recounting their story in verse 8. He says, In Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. So just preceding this passage, Paul and Barnabas have been in Iconium. And they've been proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the unbelievers, though they had some converts, the unbelievers of Jews and Gentiles kind of got riled up and drove them out of town on a rail. So Paul and Barnabas, they flee and they come to Lystra. And Lystra is a special place in the book of Acts because it is by far the most Gentile village that we have been to yet. There's... Nary a Jew to be found in Lystra, and hence no synagogue to be found either. And so this is by far the most pagan, Gentile little village that the gospel has spread to thus far. And so they begin to announce the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they're announcing, Paul does this miraculous healing. And again, we should hear echoes of Luke's previous writings here in Acts 14. We should hear echoes of Luke chapter 5, of Jesus healing the lame man that's been lowered through the roof by his friends, if you remember that wonderful story. We should hear echoes of Acts chapter 3, of Peter raising up this crippled beggar, telling him to stand up and walk, and he does. Paul now has entered this grand prophetic tradition of Jesus and Peter in the healing of this man and if that's not crazy enough for you this wonderful little miracle things get a little bit stranger in the next verse in verse 11 Luke says when the crowd saw what Paul had done they shouted in the Lyconian language the gods have come down to us in human form Barnabas they called Zeus And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice. So if there was ever any doubt that this was a Gentile village, this puts those doubts to rest. Because an observant Jew would never seek to idolize Paul and Barnabas in this way. Uh, but this is a very Gentile, pagan village, and they're so excited, so impressed by this miracle that they want to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. They think they're gods. Right? It's like C-3PO in Return of the Jedi right, It's that kind of thing happening. They're so excited about this power. they want to worship Paul and Barnabas. And this whole strange incidence just shows us, illustrates how ready the human heart is to worship. This whole strange scenario shows us just how great is the propensity of the human heart toward idolatry, toward finding something to latch on to, to venerate, to praise and exalt. John Calvin said famously that the human mind is an idol factory. It's an idol forge that we can just come up with things essentially at will to worship, to latch on to, to praise the human mind, an idol factory. And we are so easily drawn astray to those idols. One of the most celebrated writers of the last several decades is a guy named David Foster Wallace. And he delivered a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005. And he wasn't a Christian that I know of in any traditional sense, but his insight into the nature of the human heart and our need and desire to worship is really astounding, I think. Wallace says this in his address. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He says there's no such thing as not worshiping, as not adoring something, as not lifting something up as the ultimate, ascribing ultimate value to someone or something in your life. And if you follow his argument in this commencement address, he essentially says basically anything other than God that we worship as humans tends to eat us alive. Right? Worship money. You'll never have enough. Worship your body or beauty. And Wallace says, when the signs of age begin to show, you'll die a million deaths before they plant you. He says, worship power, and you'll always be in fear. You'll always need more power over other people. Worship intellect, being seen as smart. And you'll always fear being found out as a fraud. Worship yourself. These are the kind of things that we worship. And and David Foster Wallace says, you know, the insidious thing about it is that these are just kind of our default settings. These are just kind of what we worship in our default state. And he says... You know, in this default state, the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings, because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The human heart is an idol factory. And everybody worships, but the only choice we get is what we're going to worship. And Paul wants to give these Lyconians a different choice. Paul wants them to choose something else. In verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. I know tearing your clothes in that day was a sign of grief or protest. But I also feel like Barnabas is kind of like, you think I'm Zeus? Look at this dad bod. (laughs) You know, there's dad bod and there's dad God. And I am dad bod. I'm not Zeus. And so Paul says, no, no, turn from these worthless things from Zeus and Hermes Turn from these worthless things to the living God. To which I can kind of hear the Lyconians responding to Paul, well, okay, who's this living God then? You know, like, what's the difference between Hermes or Zeus and this so called living God of Israel? And we can hear similar retorts in our own day, right? There's actually a pretty common atheist quip that atheists will sometimes say to Christians. They'll say, well, look, okay, there's tons and tons of gods that you don't believe in. You know, there's Hindu gods and pagan gods and Zeus and Hermes and whatnot. We're both atheists when it comes to those gods. I just believe in one less god than you. To which I've heard somebody say that's, Kind of like a single man telling a married man, look, we're both bachelors, I'm just married to one less woman than you. But what this gets at is the extreme categorical difference between talking about a lowercase g God and the living God. Right? The extreme distinction of talking about a lowercase g god, idol, and the living God. When we talk about a lowercase g god, we're not talking about something that is transcending our reality, above or beyond our reality. right? We're talking about something that is just a supposedly higher or more powerful being within our reality, right? When we talk about a lowercase g god, we're talking about just another being among beings, a something in the universe that can be counted up amongst other somethings, right? Something that does, isn't beyond nature but belongs to nature, A lowercase g God is something that depends upon the universe for existence. But when we talk about the living God, we're not talking about something that depends upon the universe for existence. God doesn't depend upon the universe for existence. The universe depends upon God. Right? God is not just another being among other beings that can be counted up in the world. God is the source of being, existence itself. Paul will say in Acts 17 that it's in Him we live and move and have our being. Right? Everything that exists continually receives its existence from the one true living God. God doesn't depend upon the universe for existence. The universe depends upon God. And when we're talking about the living God, we're talking about something on a completely different plane. And so Paul says turn from these lowercase g gods, turn from these worthless idols. Turn from Zeus and Hermes. Turn from money, sex, power, intellect, self. Turn from these to the living God Himself. To the living God who created all that is. And Paul says in verse 16, The God who in past generations He allowed all the nations to follow their own ways, yet He has not left Himself without a witness in doing good giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Fruitful seasons, food, joyful hearts. Paul's saying, look, everything good and true and beautiful comes from the living God. This God has given us all that is. He's given Himself And he's given creation itself. And everything true and good and beautiful in the universe comes from this one true living God of Israel. The God of Jesus Christ. And then our story ends with another kind of miraculous moment. We sort of end as we begin. Because we end with Paul miraculously surviving this stoning after the crowds get riled up. And we began with that miraculous healing. Paul raising up this man to walk again. And the Lyconians saw this miracle, this sign, but they didn't see where the sign was pointing. They didn't see where it was truly pointing to. And when we talk about miracles, I think we often talk about them as if they are reversals of creation. Right? When we talk about miracles, we often talk about them as a manipulation or a negation of the created order. But a miracle is not a reversal of creation. Miracles don't reverse creation, they actually reaffirm it. A miracle is not negating or disrupting God's good creation. It's reaffirming God's good created gift. It's a repetition of God giving creation's goodness. A miracle gives again that initial gift that God already gave. Right so when Paul speaks life into this man's legs and he stands up and walks he's echoing the speech of the living God who spoke all things into existence. When Paul restores honor and dignity and health and vitality to this man's legs he is echoing God's gift of his own image on human beings and creation. And when Jesus Christ miraculously rises from the dead on a Sunday morning of new creation, he is echoing God's original creation gift on that very first Sunday in the life of the world. Miracles don't reverse creation. They reaffirm it. They reaffirm the gift that God has already given to us. And so the gospel, when Paul announces the gospel in Lystra, when the gospel is announced in your life, the gospel is not an interruption in your life. It's a restoration of your life's founding purpose. The gospel is not a negation of, of your life, of your existence. It's a reaffirmation of who you were always intended to be, of who you were always intended to worship, not these lowercase g gods, not these idols, not intellect, money, power, sex, or self, but the one true living God in Christ you were always intended to love and praise and adore. You know, the Lyconians were not all that far off. When they see this miracle, they say, the gods have come down to us in human form. But the truth of it is singular. The truth is that God has come in human form, in the form of a servant, a slave, the form of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is calling us to give up all these lowercase g gods, these idols, these things that are lesser. And he's saying, give those up and worship the one true living God in whom we live and move and have our being. The God who has given himself from the first day of creation and gave himself again all the way to the cross and in the resurrection. God is always giving himself. God wants to shut down the idol factory in our hearts. He wants to to tear it down and build up something new. Build up something into the head of Christ. He wants us to worship him above all else. Let's begin by standing and praising the one true living God of Jesus Christ together.